When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. I also want to thank you ahead of time for listening to the podcast. It's a pleasure to produce and I'd love to share my passion for podcasting with more people. So if you enjoy this show, please help me spread the word either by subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher or sharing this episode. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips of success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Right, we're recording. Ready to go, Pete? Um, Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the podcast again. Today, I'm joined uh, with... Pete Grobler, who he actually used to be my uh, lecturer when I was at university. So I studied design multimedia, but I wasn't too impressed with uh, all my all my lessons, should I say. So I picked up illustration in my second year, and Pete was my lecturer. And Pete uh, is an established illustrator, and so I'm not going to mess up his introduction anymore. I'm going to pass you over to Pete to, uh, to let you know exactly what he's done in the past. So yeah, over to you, Pete. Oh, uh, you don't want to hear the whole story, do you? It's it's go, a long story. Go as deep as you want. Um, I come from South Africa. I was born there. You probably gathered that from my accent, which I can't uh, hide from anybody. I've always wanted to make illustrations, pictures, but my my life didn't work out that way. I studied theology first. I was a church minister for five years. Then I studied. I realized that it's not going to work, so... I was out of there very quickly. Then studied um, journalism, an honest degree in journalism. Did a little bit of work along those lines, but at the same time started to do graphic design studies. And then had a job as, I would say, something between graphic design and journalism, which was to do with page layout of internal magazines. And I quite enjoyed that, but started more and more to illustrate. So after a couple of years for that company, which was a design studio of a very large insurance company in South Africa, I became a freelance illustrator. And then I had a little gallery as a freelance illustrator of picture books mainly. That was my focus. But having said that, I've also many years have been illustrating for magazines in South Africa, newspapers. Some of them glossies, some cultural magazines, some straight 
thought we're ladies' magazines. Have you continued to do that while you're a lecturer? Yes, and I'm still, still now, to illustrate every week I make two lifestyle editorial illustrations for the South African Sunday Times. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's quite enjoyable. I really like that. It keeps me going, you know, if I don't have the time for other serious work. I have to do that because right. it's sort of a, an agreement. And then when I was already old, at the age of 40-ish, 42, I think, I did my master's degree um, at the University of Stellenbosch, and that was in illustration. And after that, I started to teach part-time at that same university later, and also at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Yeah, and then I moved to the UK in 2009. And since then, I've been course leader at the University of Worcester in illustration. And this isn't in my uh, list of questions, but what, what was the incentive to move to the UK in the first place? At the time, my daughter was five, and my wife and I thought that South Africa was not the safest place to raise a child and to give her a future. So we came. To, to change that, yeah. <laughs> so how long have you been a, a, an illustration lecturer per se now? Um, it would have started three years before we came here. In other words, that must have been 2006. So oh, basically over 10 years now? Yes, yes. And so my first question is uh, relating to how you actually assess illustration. I suppose if you've been a lecturer for over 10 years, you'd be the best person to ask that question. How do you determine what makes it, um, an illustrator good? I think the answer is fairly simple. Uh, the illustration is good if it serves its purpose, if it communicates. And that's, that's the same with whether it's a narrative illustration, a picture book or a comic, or whether it's editorial, or whether it's commentary, whether it's information, it doesn't matter. If the message doesn't come across, it's not working, I mean, it's not good. Um, illustrators don't can't, can't afford themselves the luxury of uh, fine artists that they can just make something for its own sake. You make it because there was a brief and there's an expectation, an application. So do you not think that there is uh, a, a, a space for people to just illustrate for the sake of illustrating? I do, actually. Yeah, right. <laughs> I actually do. Um, but even then, I think... You would have in mind what this is and where what this wants to say. And if you manage to get that message across to whomever your uh, audience would be, then I think it's good. I obviously think, I mean, one could go into more details. I appreciate, I like illustrations that demonstrate innovation and not just copying or regurgitate what's been already. I seem to remember you getting particularly uh, annoyed at people when they drew manga illustrations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my pet hate is, is really, I mean, in a, and it's an annual thing. You have to get it out of students' systems that there's no point in copying manga or Disney or whatever coloring book style, as they like to call it, they've been following and copying because it's already there. So why bother? And why, why bother to come to university? You can sit in your garage and copy manga until you're half dead, and you will save a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is a question I'm going to come to later on. But um, I guess my next question it regards 
the fact that you're a you know you're a clearly a smart guy that thinks about things a lot and yet you've chosen to pursue a life uh, of illustration and I always find it fascinating to to ask people why they choose what their profession is because people dedicate you know large amounts of their life to these pursuits and so what was it that made you decide that illustrations a thing you're gonna put your time and effort into um I've always liked to draw pictures and I've always loved to read stories and I've always liked people and I think and also the, all the other things that I've done in my life and studied in my life all had to do with communication so I guess that I'm interested in communication and communicating um yeah that's that's why I want to do that um just just for for people I mean myself actually you say you studied theology. Hmm. What does that actually involve? It means you study. You, the first three years, you do a BA in classical languages. I did three years of Hebrew, classical Hebrew, three, three years of Greek, one year of Latin, and you do things like philosophy, biblical studies, what else is there? Psychology. Then after you've got the basic BA, then you do the equivalent of a master's degree, three more years, and that is the theology. That is things like ethics, New Testament studies, Old Testament studies, uh, missio science of mission or missiology. I don't know the English for that one. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? Practical theology. Right. And history of... So would you say it's a closer, more close to a, a, a philosophical study or a, or a religious study? A good combination of the two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, something else I'll come back to mm. because um, it really interests me. Uh, some of the people that I've met recently who are particularly scientific but mm. kind of have a religious side to them. Mm. Or, and I've, to me, that conflicts. And it was, you know, I like to work out people's logic on that kind of thing. Okay. Um, you say it's about communication for you mm. and so a lot of people haven't teached before and I was wondering if you could maybe share some advice about maybe a couple of tips that you use actually for communicating with students and is there something particular about students as opposed to other people? Um, students as they come are younger uh, I have to remind me all the time, myself all the time, that they are actually um, children to a large extent, or many of them are. One tends to expect more of them than they are capable of giving, but also I think they themselves expect too little from themselves. Um, I think my irritation often with students is that they lack frame of reference and they don't seem to bother too much to get a broader frame of reference they don't read enough they don't travel they don't see loads of different kinds of movies they don't need newspapers they just play games which is also fine and good but it's not going to get you anywhere if you pay so much money and you have to get something out of it so to me that's always a challenge to try to interest students in 
what you would have expected them to be interested in, in any case. You know, they come to study illustration, you would have expected them to to know quite a little bit about it already or be interested. But that's a challenge and, and one that I like to, to persuade them that it's really quite a broad field and an interesting one. I think this is something that even myself I've really come to realise more in the last few years is that um, your your sources of input, be, be them what you read or what you consume, then become the points of reference that yeah. you have to communicate outwards. Yeah, and when you're young, even more so, um, kind of popular culture has never been more able to funnel people to, to, to capture their attention than ever before. Yeah. So everyone has the same points of reference. Yeah. And, and the cognitive bias of kind of the bandwagon effect of people saying that this is good, so everyone feels the need to consume it, mm. meaning that there's, they, there is little diversity in the way people, or I'm not sure if diversity is the right word, but like you say, the context in which they come at problems. And, you know, I was in that same position. I'm not pretending that I was any different. But I remember you actually saying to me, and this, this always interested me, is you said, the problem with reading books, Rick, is that you either read one, <laughs> no, you either read none or you read them all. <laughs> and that's definitely been true for me. Um, you know, ever since I opened that can of worms, it's just ne it's been a never-ending yeah. thing. That's the beauty of it, the frustration at the same time. Yeah, you know how little you know. The the more you get to know, the more you know. But I know nothing. Yeah, and there's so much to to see still. So you, I think you skirted my question, Pete, which is uh, how how do you uh, <laughs> you say that you like the challenge, but how do you break down that wall? I don't know, and I, I don't know whether I I managed to break it down, um, but. I think the, the rewarding thing about teaching, and I suppose that's why I'm still doing it, is every year you know you've made a difference for some. Um, yeah, you can tell. You you know, you see what they do, and you know you had a little input there. You were instrumental perhaps to some things. Not everything. It's a combination. They have many lecturers. But if you, I think you, you open their eyes to some things, um, that's rewarding. And then... Sometimes they're really, I mean, I've had students that are really, really so good. Oh, that's great. Uh, those who really want it. And because let's face it, so few of them manage. And I know that's that's one of the questions you have, is exactly <laughs> that, you know. So, so few of them really become illustrators. So what do you think actually makes the ones that become illustrators? What are the characteristics that they possess that others don't? I don't think they're always necessarily the most um, gifted ones. Some of the very gifted ones, and I've seen that here since I started teaching here, simply do not either have the self-belief or the drive or that ability to market themselves or understand themselves in the context of the industry. From your experience, what do, what do illustration students tend to go into afterwards? It's quite a, a wide variety, and I think... That makes me feel, okay, I mean, I mentioned to you that so few students really become illustrators of, of fame or illustrators that really make a, a living without it. I mean, here I am. I've had a pretty good career, still have it, I hope, in picture book illustration, yet I choose to teach as well. Uh, very few 
illustrator's mic smashing living out of it. So we would like to think that our our course uh, teaches students transferable skills that are applicable in many situations. I hope so. Therefore, our students some go into teaching. Quite a number of them go on to further study. We've had every year uh, three out of the group at least go to master's degrees. Um, quite a number of them, like yourself, are graphic designers, or they focus on that or combine that with the illustration. We had one girl who's designing socks. That is her job. She <laughs> loves it. And a more exotic destination was uh, Matt Williams. He's now teaching art in China. He married a Chinese girl at university and now lives in Shanghai teaching art. Um, freelancing, I would say, and the, the the guys who are into comics, they they often go to these comic conventions. They rent a table, they put up a stand, sell their goods, and they normally do things like posters as well, t-shirt design, gig posters, things does, like. Does that. it tend to be a kind of side gig for them, realistically afterwards? Uh, yes, they some of them normally has another day job, either at a cinema. Or a restaurant or something like that. Right. Just do this, and it gives them the opportunity to illustrate and feel they they're published. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. Well, this is one of the things that I always questioned when I was here, and it was, and I mean, you might give me a much better answer, but it is the question of justifying um, the fees and with the such low levels that actually go on to do it as a career that, mm. and you know, even recoup close to what they that they spend in fees. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do universities justify it currently? I'm so glad that I'm not responsible for the fees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't charge the fees and I actually do not believe in the fees at all. I mean, I find it strange that the UK or this current government thought it was a wise thing to impose these fees on students given the fact that Countries like Germany, uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, more than one country in Europe, they don't pay a thing or they pay very, very little. And our country, the UK, is is not a poor country. It's one of the most affluent countries in Europe. Students shouldn't be paying for study. People should get the opportunity to, to earn a living if we have such a you know robust economy as, as we have. Okay, but that doesn't answer your question. I think we give the we never give students false hope. Uh, whenever we recruit students, I tell them you have to realize it's not easy to become an illustrator. You're self-employed unless you do a joint degree or you develop your skills to be doing graphic design as well. Especially, I think graphic design is possibly the best option, the best um, bedfellow for um, an illustrator. Um, some of our illustration students are quite keen on animation as well, but animation is quite technical. I think in order to make a living there, you'd better focus on that. Um, but I think if students can manage to combine it with graphic design, that's possibly a very good idea. It serves them very well when they could go into publishing um, either books, magazines, so many, many jobs, or just a design studio job. I think it's just the with graphic design there seems to be a bit more of a kind of commercial stint to it. Mm. Why 
it seems like illustration deliberately kind of moves away from that and that it, it's almost pure it's it's the closest thing to art without being art right in in the way but then it's funny because you say that the thing that separates illustration is is its com commercial application mm. and sorry i'm rambling a little bit but even going to your bio on your website you talk mm. about the fact that you believe that art in in its in its form is illustration and i kind of feel like they're all relatively merged as yeah, great disciplines are. you're right i think it, it's pretty superfluous to keep on having the high art low art debate you know what's real art and what is not it's not a, a debate that illustration designed or invented it's it's pretty much more something that fine artists um, are adamant about i mean they're very quick to to tell some fine art students your work is too illustrative or too narrative as if that's a bad thing but it's considered to be a bad thing um having said that it, it's all for me it's quite an interesting thing the fact that contemporary fine art is focusing much more nowadays on installation conceptual art video art things like that and much less on painting on drawing there is actually a void uh a void in galleries and gallery walls that illustration students are just too happy to fill and you get more and more illustrators and this is probably where your comment becomes um, I think quite valid you get more and more illustrators who make something create an image and they they consider that as an illustration not as a fine art painting it is an illustration and they would even create 20 of those independent illustrate illustrations and have an exhibition in a gallery and sell that. Um, it's becoming very commonplace, especially nowadays when um, print techniques is, is quite a popular thing in commercial illustration, but also in gallery illustration, for lack of a better word, where um, yeah, silkscreen printing, lino, etching, all kinds of prints, combined techniques are becoming quite popular. While you're on the subject of techniques, I'm curious to know, and you talked about how artists are moving into installation, video, and that kind of thing. Where has illustration progressed over, over the years? Do you see that it's adapted, and where are the innovations happening? I think the digital era resulted into a lot of adaptations and adaption in terms of the skill set of not that I developed that very much. I'm probably too old school. I never took the time to really go into that. But I also think it's um, it's another tool. I think one should also not be foolish to think everybody has to do the same things. I think it's, for me, I'm impatient. I have to do illustrations that are fairly quick. And that results in my visual language. It is quite very often a bit loose, but also quite, I quite like, like little, little details, which I suppose then led to me being passionate about picture book illustration. Um, the innovation, I think, on the digital front, many illustrators nowadays um, work with some digital component in some other stage in the creation of the picture. Um, Many, I would say the majority, would actually draw by hand, scan it, and then rework it or color it digitally. Do you think that takes away from illustration as a, mm. as a handcrafted art or not? No, I don't. It's still the hands. If you can't draw, you can't draw, whether it's with computer or pencil. 
if you're not visually intelligent, that's that's sad because you you won't become an illustrator. The, the computer does not solve your problems for you. You say that, but uh, it's funny. I've watched numerous illustrators now, mm. and the thing which I see more often than not is basically them compiling a composition in Photoshop of random disparate elements mm. and then copying over the top of it. Or, or tracing, okay. and then that forms its you know an illustration mm. of itself mm. that's beautiful. And um, you know, for example, I can't draw. You know that. <laughs> no, your drawing was not too bad at all. Honestly, I uh, appreciate that, P. <laughs> thanks. Um, but you know, that's the way I get around it now. If I'm having to submit scamps or something, as mm. I work over photography, mm. is that a legit? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I believe so. Yeah, people. Even serious portrait painters uh, sometimes work like that. Yeah, I, I think it's probably... Uh, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you're going to use photography, trace over it, but that's not the end of the story. That's not where the skill comes in. The skill comes in to create something that's appealing or communicating within a context. Then maybe in that case, then my childhood art classes weren't cheating after all. Because at that like, age you should not be tracing yeah well you were always told copying is bad and that kind of thing and yeah. I remember one thing that I used to do was I I had a computer at home so I used to print off images mm. in grayscale and then paint over the top and the, mm. the paint would seek, soak through and so I got like great shadows yeah. and it just made all of my pictures look like they were fantastically <laughs> done with great oh. shadowing but obviously I never told my teachers that and they <laughs> thought I was fantastic art um but yeah i know that was a dark secret for me i think but maybe, maybe it was valid after all yeah i yeah. no <laughs> you draw I, I the think, line there i think i think the best way to approach an illustration is is always like we keep on nagging our students to from observation observe or if you have to do a horse check out a horse or if you can't get a horse a photograph and just draw it until you understand the horse then you can stylize it, you can characterize it, whatever way you want to go with it, and it will be your own horse um, to get. And that links uh, up with the comment that I made about frame of reference. Sadly, if what students do, they think um, the trick with teaching. I've never taught drawing. One of my college colleague, colleagues took that of, uh, took care of that. But students sometimes don't seem to be able to make the link between the drawing class and then making an illustration. It's almost as I think that's that. And then when you do illustration, you go into totally different mode. And what they do then, instead of observing the real horse, to stick to the horse, um, they go through the files of horse pictures in their mind and illustrate this horse thing. And then that's where the manga comes in, the Disney, because in their minds are files of illustrations of... Sorry, Pete. You're, you're in. My point is that um, students, yeah, the, the best thing is to observe the real thing, understand that, draw that, and then you can stylize, then you can make an illustration, and it won't be copying something already existing. So but... I mean, there's still something to say for I've some of the most powerful illustrations that I've seen were um, collages. In essence, not all those photographs have been taken by the illustrator himself, but he created something new, created a new context. Yeah, it's funny that because when talking, yeah, talking about your point of reference thing, 
if everyone's studying the real thing, does then everyone's point of reference become the same again? You know, no, if, if, if they won't study the same thing, you'll your horse will be a Dartmoor pony, and mine <laughs> will be an African horse underfed. Yeah, because it, it used. I mean, I just think back to Leonardo da Vinci sketches when they used to do, or he in particular did just extensive research of just mm. the most mundane objects. Almost, mm. do you think that's missed? It's missed because um, not here. Because we try to, we have life drawing as part of our drawing course. Students have to draw an entire first year. Um, so we try to, to get that. That is the best thing that you can, you can get. Which does not mean that illustrations have to be naturalistic or realistic. That's not the point. But it's the point is you can observe, you can make a mark. Yeah. Cool. Um, Let's delve into picture books because it's your your area of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, first off, you, how many picture books have you published to this, at this point? It is more or less 80. Wow. Yeah, I have to always qualify that. 20 of that or so were a, from a series of educational books. Not anything that I would show anybody any longer. But yeah, I've done quite a number of books. But then again, I'm old, so I've had many years to do it. Sure. So <laughs> what, what, what's been the process, I guess? Or what is the process for someone that's looking to publish a, publish a, a book? What, what hoops are they having to jump through? I would say that they have to be confident in the illustration. They have to have a good um, portfolio, I assume, I would like to think. If they approach a publisher... Um, if you're a picture book, if you're interested in picture books, um, then you cannot really do it without, I think, thinking of commissions from further afield as well. The world is changing so fast. Um, you're not competing with all the other English picture book illustrators if you work in this country. You're pretty much competing with all the other picture book illustrators in the world. You know, that's, that's what it works like. You, having said that, it is also true that within a certain culture, certain people work. That is also also the case. But if you really want to be competitive, you would go out to the Bologna Children's Book Fair, which happens once a year in Italy, which is the best place to, to get inspiration from, but also my contact network with all the best publishers and picture book people in the world. So, yeah, do that kind of homework. Then what... Many authors uh, often make the mistake of they write a story and they think, okay, now it's their task to find an illustrator to illustrate it for them and then this package, they take it to um, a publishing house. There's, there are a few things that publishers hate more than exactly that. They do not want an author to come to them with an illustrator. They would rather find illustrators either through catalogs that they see of competitions or through the agents. Um, and then they would um, couple an illustrator with an author. I can imagine doing that. If I can imagine I would have fallen into the exact same trap. Um, I'm curious, let's like, say with a, ch a children's book, it, it can often consist of 12 lines of text. If you're, as a writer, looking to get an illustrator to illustrate a, a story you've, you've come up with, mm. Is it is it acceptable to go to a publishing house with uh, 
basically a 12 line piece of text yes you can if it's if it's working it it works uh, the amount of text it doesn't uh, you know make or break and it, it, story or is there a even with that I mean this is something I'm I'm sure there probably is a finer art to it but a lot of people would re read a children's book story and not see any great difficulty there but what is the there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, the underlying kind of criteria that, that people look for with a written narrative. I think it, it is, it's, it's not at all as easy as it seems. Um, many people think they can do it and they want to do it and then they never get published because they simply do not have it. Some people even think it's easier to write for adults because we are adult um, than you know, create something that's going to appeal to a young audience. Um, I think it's hard to say what, because there's so many different kinds of picture books. They're not all the same. Um, especially with picture books, you have to be uh, you have to be very aware of the fact that it's not going to exist on its own. So you can't say too much. You can't say what the pictures are meant to say. Then it's the picture will become superfluous or merely decorative. Um, and the same with an illustrator, I think they have to bring something to the text that's not already there, either by creating a subtext, an additional take on it, or a hidden story within the illustrations. That's really captivating. I love the hidden story element. I remember you showed me a few examples of that. Mm. But I'm just trying to think of like you know a line I might hear in a children's book, and it might be, the lion roared. Mm. Well, that's descriptive, right? It is, yeah. So but is how that, you is illustrate that, a... that could be good or could be bad. I mean, you could just show a lion that roars, or you could show, not even show the lion that roars, but just show his shadow and sh show perhaps the whole jungle shivering of fear. And then that is, that is more lateral than literal. So that's when it becomes good. What else do you, do you give and do you bring to I the see. Picture? So it's kind of where a narrative... 
this is the thing I always struggle with with storybooks. Is I feel like there's an, so much language that it almost feels like l- sentences are hard to read because like I'm just trying to get to the end of this sentence without so many descriptive yeah. words. Yeah. And so with children's books, you're looking to remove that and just depict it graphically. Yeah, very often. And it's, is that, it's a fine balance. Is that why adults' books don't often have illustration? I think it, it's a combination of things. Very often the perception is, wrongly so, that picture books are only there for people who can't really read properly, so it's for children who can't read enough, or read well so they need pictures. That is not the point. Um, you get picture books that are extremely sophisticated, but it's just that combination of words. What are being said and what are not being said? What are being, have been illustrated but and what not? Um, and that could be quite complex. Um, it's it's quite difficult to just describe it to you. If, if I showed you that, it would it would make more sense. But uh, you probably remember the the examples that we looked at. Well, I was going to ask you actually. Could just for the sake of people listening, could you name a few examples without going into detail? Mm. Maybe they can do their own kind of research. Uh, some examples of sophisticated um, picture books that. Mm people can go and look at the backstory and what makes them particularly um, like have depth to them? Mm. I think my all-time favorite is the one, it's a German picture book you won't find in English, and that's where cultural aspect comes in. It's, it's considered to be too harsh in our society, but about the woman who wanted to eat a child, and the whole book is about her hunting or going to find this child that she wants to eat. And all through the book, um, there's a wreath of leaves in her hair. And I know in South Africa, we call that plant a delicious monster. I think it's also called a broken heart in some countries. Um, I think something like that is quite, it's quite important that that plant was put on her head. On every single page in that book, you find the moon. Um, and it's, it's a moon with a face like we find in, in literature at times. Um, and even that is significant. I think that's representative of the powers that be the gods, if you like, seeing or not seeing this horrible thing that's happening, because I think there's a lot of commentary built into that book as well. In the end, she finds a perfect child, but this child has to be perfect, the one she wants to eat. And she doesn't realize that because, um, because she's so um, driven by her obsession, she eats her own child. Um, and what is being shown on that page where the text says, so she ate him, and the previous page where she finds this perfect child, he's playing a little concertina, he's standing on a table, and there's a monkey with a little drum, and he's wearing a fez like circus monkeys, and he's playing the drum, and the text says, he was so perfect you could just eat him. The next page it says, so she ate him. The only thing you see on that page is the horror on the face of the animal and one leaf from the delicious monster plant on the other page. That's all that's needed, but that's some indication to you that it's, it is highly sophisticated. It's possibly not the kind of picture book that we would think, oh, this is perfect for my five-year-old. Um, but we also forget that we leave the kids in the sitting room whilst the news is on with all the horrible wars we think war is good but um, and many fairy tales are but horrible 
I'm mixing quite a number of themes here now, but, <laughs> but I think you get my drift. I think many picture books, the way they're being, the stories are being told is quite poignant at times, could be. What, what are some of the fairy tales that people know and love that um, actually have sinister beginnings? Even just to name a few off the top of your head. Beginnings or endings or either? Either, just because yeah. I, I mean... Do you know Bluebeard, the story of Bluebeard? That's right. one of the grim fairy tales where he married these wives and he decapitated them and there was a whole tower full of these corpses without heads. That's a, a bit of the detail from it. it, it just think about uh, Hansel and Gretel who, I mean, they, they murdered that witch. Okay, she was about to eat them, but they shoved her into an oven. So it's quite brutal, many of these things, but I mean... Life is brutal, right? <laughs> so, and I think these these things serve different purposes in the stories. So, um, that's the nature of it. Um, I actually realize now that I've never answered your question. You asked me about picture books. I told you the story of this book, but Wolf Elbruch was the um, the author. One that people will find much easier um, in English is anything by Sean Tan. He's an Australian illustrator, wonderful illustrator. But yet again, his books, you can write a thesis on each of them. Not because they're on the surface so complex. Sometimes they're on the surface quite readable, but below the surface. And I think that's a good picture book. Those that are on the surface level communicates with a wide audience or the intended audience. But then you can also peel off the layers. On the next level, it's possibly interesting interesting for a year one student. On the, you peel down the next layer and you realize but there's so much postmodernist theory down here it's actually stuff for MA and you could go on like that yeah I think it's true of all the good examples of, of things I think people uh, I don't know enough about it but I believe like uh, Jean-Michel Basquet the artist mm. which are these kind of very childish looking drawings mm. but actually there's a whole depth of mm. art knowledge in there and they were quite if you think of those they were childlike seemingly like you say but at the same time they were so expressive and you were somehow without knowing why moved by them you couldn't look at them but being either offended or moved or intrigued and that's good art it doesn't leave you cold yeah which is funny that he was around the same area as warhol yeah 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 um so another thing on uh, picture books that I guess people will want to know is the, around the finance, financial side of it. Mm. So from my understanding, I believe you get like an upfront uh, amount of money and then if your book sells, there will be like royalties or yes. however that uh, is that the case. And that, does that it... Is, mm, sorry. No, you, you go, you go. The, that is the case. Um, I'm not sure I've been doing this for so many years, since 1992, I think. Um, I've been fortunate I did well with my books and I traveled with my books I took them to places um, I saw the world with them which makes a difference when you being, you're being offered a contract you, you're being paid an advancement on the royalties I think if you're less a known illustrator or a first time illustrator you may not necessarily be offered an advancement but only a contract with royalties so once books have sold you would be paid but if you're well established you get an advancement as well which is really the fair way i believe because illustrators invest quite a lot of time in that 
it varies quite a lot whether these are trade books that you're doing or picture books for the educational environment. They're being marketed total different places. Educational books have different contracts as well. They normally would like to buy, try even to buy your copyright. They often, they would prefer to buy, to, to, to uh, offer you a flat fee. But it's really in the interest of the illustrator, uh, of course, for an educational book to get royalties because it could result into multiple sales. So it varies and contracts vary. The Politi uh, the, the financial climate um, has an influence on the, you know, the abundance promised in the contract. It varies quite a bit. If I just think about my own experience between here in Holland, England's paying quite well. I've just done a picture book for a Chinese publisher and they pay extremely well. It all depends on how much they want it and for what reason they want it. So it's, it's not a hard and fast rule. With having published so many books, do you find that you still get paid royalties from for books you published many years ago? And does that add, add up? It does, and I do, but not books, picture books, unless you are the illustrator and creator of The Gruffalo, which is a massively successful book, or uh, you know something like that that's that, that popular. The, to the extent that there are spin-offs like toys and merchandise and things like that. Unless you're that, you don't really become rich of it, or your books do not always have a very, very long lifetime. Books get reprinted. If the print run sells out um, fairly quickly, they will reprint it. They will reprint it um, until it stops selling. They would not waste space on in storerooms for a book that doesn't sell so if a book has a mediocre lifetime I think you could expect to get another check or two royalties a couple of years later it may not be massive it might be 500 pounds one year 300 and then it's quiet then the book is dead it's interesting they don't just do kind of print on demand with how far technology's mm. come, you know. Mm. That might happen in the future, you never know. And would you encourage students, so what you're talking about for maybe someone that doesn't know, obviously I'm sure a lot of people do, but if you're the guy that creates Star Wars, it's better to not get paid for the film but get but keep the intellectual property rights on merchandise because mm. that's where the money is. Mm. They're selling toys, bedspreads blah 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 like what and likewise when you're actually as a filmmaker for example you could create the next thriller mm. but there's not merchandise off the back of it or you can create toy story mm. and there's a million possibilities of ways to sell that stuff to kids do you encourage illustrators to kind of come at it from an intellectual property standpoint where they're creating things that can be used in other capacities because I feel like that's where illustrators miss a trick a lot of the time is they do stuff that yeah. is is nice as a standalone mm. but it doesn't have any longevity or and that's kind of obviously a different mindset yeah it is a different mindset and I think sadly illustrators do not really have that skill or the inclination to to think like proper business people which one should ideally but not everything lends itself necessarily to, you know, spin-offs. 
soft toys and things like that and puzzles some do and that normally happens or usually happens when a book sells well and there's a very strong character that's very often why, why that comes about then the next thing would be the spin-offs yeah so i think we've just about around about summed up around that um trying to think if there was anything is there anything else that you can think of that someone may need to know if they were looking to to publish their, their first book how how do they go about approaching a publisher for example oh you've mentioned going to this going to the festival yes or they could just send make it as easy as possible for the publisher to check to to see your um, cv i think it's best to send something by post and they open the letter and immediately there's a picture in the hand you could in addition also send a cd uh, but if that's the only thing you send, CD. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> wow, email, <laughs> they're not going to read an email, it, that not. They but would ma- rather... ma- a lot of laptops don't even have CD drives that anymore. That is true, sadly. <laughs> but but so how would people send it then? By, by email? Do you, do you know what? I actually, people don't open emails. One of the girls in our office um, called Kat, hmm. she's actually, she produced a beautiful uh, illustration book. But what she did was she went and created it. Mm. cost her kind of 50 60 pounds or something mm. to actually create this book yeah and she's got one copy of it yeah but it's what you would see on the shelf yeah and then that becomes you know it, it helps get people over the hurdle completely of what would this book may look like eventually yeah. um and and she sends that around you know and out the back off the back of that she's actually hopefully gonna get her first published book and she's straight out of Okay, has she had some any offers yet? She's um she's at she's in talks at Bloomsbury at the moment. Okay, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean she you know, it's a rare That's I, a good thing, but yet again that is to get back to my actual point, which is that send them something that's a tangible. picture already. Yeah. yeah. Do not send them something electronic. I've heard that from publishers themselves. I do not you can imagine if you get twenty emails a day and you can see the attachment, it's everybody sending portfolios yeah if you don't have the time you're gonna wait till next week you'll forget in the end there will be 200 of these you're, you're lost so you have to send in something tangible and something immediate i think something paper or like the book in uh, in the case of your your friend that might be an expensive way you one could also sell a concept to a publisher by just making say a cover illustration and one more finished illustration and your story. Few publishers will accept a thing. It has to be brilliant for them to accept it as it is. And they have a slightly uh, childish think... pride as well. They want to feel they were co-creators of this. So they they would not really take something out as it is. They, they'd rather have a text and some suggestions and then they work on the project. Yeah, I think what they've actually said is that they love her book, but they'd like her to work on an, a picture book for somebody else. And then if that mm. goes well, they'd look to publish hers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I think you're right. It comes down to tangible. But and the other thing, and I mean, tell me if you disagree. When I when I think about illustrators' portfolios, um, I kind of have this theory, which is you can either be an amazing illustrator or you can be consistently bad. And... <laughs> again you may disagree with this but i remember going to one of the illustration shows that you you put on in in london when the students were ex- mm. exhibiting their work 
and there was two people that stood out as being really really good yeah and then there was another girl who you may look at her work and say it's not particularly amazing but it was her style and it was consistent and i from a commercial perspective i feel like that that just basically means that this is marketable we can it's not going to be appropriate for everything but what it is appropriate for at least we know it's a repeatable process Mm -hmm. and i think if there was anything that students could come out of university with if they've got their style nailed down after three four years yeah that's a massive bonus right or do you do you disagree it could ideally they would find a way of working and a visual language during their studies for some that penny drop in the third year and some leave here and you realize it was so close they need another year um some some people find work because they're versatile and because of their style of the visual language is not that uh that specific I suppose very often in advertising, they're not so interested in your personal visual language. Um, they want a certain thing, and if you fits the bill, they'll use you for that thing. It's a little bit different in picture books, where I think it's possibly more important to have a visual language that's recognizably yours or style. Yeah. Yeah, I guess when I'm saying that, I've, I imagine it's. Uh, that particularly works well for editorial and yes, that kind of thing. Yes, yes. Um, I feel like we've uh, covered most of the stuff on illustration. Is there anybody else that you feel people should check out or any particular books just out of um, for anyone that's looking to study the subject in a little bit more depth? In terms of picture books? Just anything yeah. in general, really, because I always find that the resources are, are nice to go away and explore, you know? yeah. The lovely things happening in in England at the moment, I think a lot has happened the last five years or so. In the past, very often, if you go to a place like Bologna, people would say, "Um, the English-speaking book is a bit, they're so polished, they look a bit corporate, they're a bit boring. Whilst you get much more gritty stuff or edgy stuff from the continent and from countries like Japan and Korea and Latin America as well. Uh, that's changing. You get more and more books. For example, Walker books, very often published books that are quite good, quite of a high artistic quality. Uh, book um, Flying Eye, which is an imprint of Nobrow. They make beautiful books. Always, uh, I, I think if people would keep an eye on, uh, on what's happening on the big international places, like the Bologna, um, children's Book Fair. If you go research that website, see who won the prizes, and that links, you know, you, you start look at one thing, you get to one blog, and you get all the links, and that's how you go about to see the really. So but it's I, a bit, a bit of an inner circle. It could be, but it's a big one. Right. It's a big one. It's a very big one. Final question on the illustration front: Are you going to continue to teach? Um, till I drop dead or what's the question <laughs> <laughs> the reason I ask is because I think there's a nice plane in the back now. Yeah. Um, there's some websites that are emerging at the moment I think there's one I think it's called masterclass.com or something mm. and what they've done is they've got so 
basically people at the very, very height of their industry. Mm. So you've got Kevin Spacey, for example, teaching you how to act. Oh. And for $100, you download a 30-part course that's mm. been beautifully shot by a kind of Hollywood filmmakers. Mm. Likewise, they've got, say, for uh, Dead Mouse, who I'm not even into music, but he's a massive uh, DJ, for example. You... That that's such when you compare the cost of a university lecture or university studies, even for the cost of one year of university study, mm. you could learn from thirty of the top people from around the world that are executed at the mm. executing at the highest level. Mm. Can you imagine that the university um, that university could be vulnerable to that? And if so, would you? be prepared to transfer your skills online or do you think that would you just call it a day then um i one never knows it could be interesting at a later stage of my life to do something like that i doubt in any case in my lifetime that it would replace universities because universities have these names for areas you know places of where you are able to get the best Okay, it's debatable when, whether one always gets the best, but it's also debatable, I think, whether one can, by reading 10 books on your own, or listen to 10 or 20 lectures, or look at them online, whether you can get, you know, the same thing as you might get at university, depending on the kind of student, you know, um, a good student who embraces the opportunity to do his practice and get feedback every single day I think that's invaluable and you can't really get that I suppose you can you can design something online that could get you that with those people for, uh, who does Kevin Spacey's thing for example I wonder whether they get feedback or do they just download his lecture I'm almost I assume it's for people that are kind mm. of self-motivated okay which but not yeah. not all people are self motivated. For some, it could work like that yeah. to get to get what they need, and others, especially younger students, possibly not. They might not get there on their own. Yeah, no, I can understand that. Mm. Makes sense. Um, okay, my final question, and it's just the stuff that I'm really curious about. So you studied uh, la, 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 la. theology. Theology. <laughs> And I'm finding um, philosophy in general like fascinating as a subject area. Mm. And I've yet to really, uh, I've yet to read any of the religious books. I'm intending to just because mm. I think they have like nice moral grounding a lot of the time. Um, what drew you to it? Who of the people that you learn about maybe surfaced insights that is uh, that you've carried with you for the rest of your life? And I, I never asked you this question when I studied studied with you, but are you religious? And if so, or if not, I'd just be curious to know why. At the time when I studied that, I probably had a slightly romantic idea of... I was young, like one is when you finish school. Um, what I wanted to do was to do something good, to be good to people and make a difference. You know, that idealistic view and I thought that way and I was brought up religious um, not not in a very conservative way though I have to add 
nevertheless, I, I thought that was one way of helping people. And it definitely is a way of helping people. And I would like to think that I help people go through difficult times. Um, am I still religious? I would rather think of myself as somehow spiritual. I believe in a God, but almost in a metaphorical sense, almost like the bigger ultimate good. Um, and then I believe that religions are fairly valid cultural manifestations of people's desires to understand that they can't declare, that science can't help us out with much. Um, so it's a little bit like a, like a shrink, perhaps. Which, yeah, um, which is what... From, from my experience of watching a lot of debates between religious figures and kind of folks that kind of argue against religion, it the, the people that aren't religious kind of get to a point where there are things that can't be explained and are kind mm. of content with that but aren't prepared to, to then pass over that mm. baton to a, a, a being that's greater than us, especially mm. if it's in the... Um, the context of a human being that may have created or or a, a something up in the clouds for example yeah. um but it does definitely help people who aren't comfortable with that and i think where academics get frustrated is that when things can't be explained religious people or people that have a, a faith tend to go to like it's god's will or something which yeah. can't can't be yeah like that's lazy thinking exactly it can't be argued <laughs> or, out and lazy yeah um yeah so no I, but at the same time I've, I've realized more and more that there's a lot of smart people that are religious and while i'm not myself and never have been um i that doesn't mean that i kind of see it as a philosophical text right almost in a way that mm. you can uh, take from it some really great belief yeah. systems yeah i believe so but I agree. Sometimes it's just laziness, blaming others, blaming the unknown for things, or yeah, copping out. That's not working. I can <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah. And were were there any philosophers that particularly interested you? No. Not really. I mean, I I'm in a the... bit of a pragmatist at the moment. Really. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that in the last year I've started reading um stoicism like stoicism mm. stuff and uh, seneca mm -hmm. and i just all of the stuff that he talks about it's just like a it felt like a guidebook oh yeah it, it, it very very simple principles mm. but things about um you know living a few days without excessive eating and things like that or living on the bare minimum in mm. order to program your mind to not fear the what could yeah. feasibly be the worst case scenario and, and things like that you know yeah and i feel like those things will stick with me i just wondered if there was anything in particular that any pennies that dropped while you studied it no no you you were already you were already uh <laughs> super enlightened already no i probably just realized fairly early that i have to make pictures right i think 
So it was a calling for you. Hmm. Okay, great. <laughs> Um, I normally end by asking, what would you say to help people live a better and more meaningful life? It's a pretty deep question, but do you have any advice for that? I feel like there's a lot of people that kind of find themselves struggling from time to time. And, hmm. um, I would say, life becomes meaningful, meaningful if you're kind. Be kind. Okay, great. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate you taking time. It's been nice. Okay, thank you. Good. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe and share. As a final parting word from me, I'd like to invite you all to an ongoing project called the Move Me Mailing List. The Move Me Mailing List includes links to all the interesting things I've uncovered that month, as well as resources I've discovered and insights that I believe will move you forward. So join the thousand plus early adopters you've joined the list already and see what all the fuss is about finally wherever you are in the world i hope you have a great week and see you next time for another episode bye for now today's episode was sponsored by phoby.com helping people of all ages to unlock their creative potential to find out more about phoby's events and what they can do for you visit phoby.com that's f-o-b-i.com phoby full of bright ideas Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 